KYW Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. But certainly when you watched Mike Trout, you knew you were watching, you know, just a rare talent. Not that anybody, I think, thought watching that 17-year-old kid that he was going to become the best player in the world, but he was a remarkable high school athlete. When you're covering something at the grassroots, the only way to cover it really is to get out and see games and see teams and see players and talk to coaches. And our guest this week, Phil Anastasia, longtime sports reporter in the Philadelphia area, Courier Post. Last several years with the Philadelphia Inquirer. Bill, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, nice to be here, Matt. You are almost synonymous with the coverage of high school athletics in in this area. So as we're talking here in early March, is that mid-February to mid-March about as busy as it gets with all the high school basketball postseason and tournaments and such? Without a doubt. I always say it's probably the most exciting time on the Scholastic Sports calendar, although Football people probably don't feel that way, and baseball people and lacrosse people probably don't feel that way. But there's something about the end of the winter season, particularly with, with basketball, with the excitement of those games and big crowds and gyms that really kind of lends itself to some real dramatics. So, yeah, this is the most exciting time of the year, I think, in the scholastic calendar. Now, you're an interesting guy that you kind of gravitated towards the coverage of high school athletics. Uh, you've done the Eagles beat before. You've done columns and stuff like that. What is it about scholastic sports that, that kind of captured your heart and never let go? Yeah, well, I always said at the end of my career, and I think I'm pretty close to that, um, that I would go back and do high school sports. I started out, as most sports reporters do, started out covering high schools early in my career. And then, like you said, kind of moved on to colleges, a lot of pro and col- uh, col- column writing. Um, but I always had a special place in my heart for high school sports. I think there's a, still a certain amount of... Um, innocence to it. Um, it's not the same as dealing with professional athletes or major college athletes. Um, there's certainly not the, the money around it. Um, and, there, and there's a certain amount of purity to it. Um, there's nothing to me quite like playing for your high school. I think when you get to college, obviously the level goes up. When you get to the pros, obviously the level goes up. But high school is the last real time where you're probably going to play with buddies that you grew up with. Uh, probably the last time you're going to play was maybe a school that your mom or dad went to or your aunt or your uncle went to. People in the neighborhood are familiar with that school. So it's really the last, I think, time for kids to play, you know, for a team that still kind of really resonates uh, with the people they grew up with. So there's something special about it to me. And, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, I, I just really enjoy covering it. And I really enjoy talking with the kids and, and kind of putting the spotlight on some athletes who, you know, otherwise, otherwise might not be in the spotlight. So was journalism always the the path you were going to take? You grew up in South Jersey. You went to, I guess it was, was it Glassboro State? At then? the time, correct. Yeah. Uh, was journalism always what you wanted to do? Well, I have an older, I have a famous older brother. Um, George Anastasia is a famous mob writer and, and organized crime writer. And, and uh, so he was involved in journalism uh, while I was still in school. So I kind of got a sort of an idea of what journalism was like um, just from watching him proceed early in his career. And that kind of, you know, sort of inspired me to try to follow in his footsteps. And I was going to bring him up earlier. And it's interesting that you both are writers, but vastly different beats you cover. Uh, were you always... Was sports reporting always the lane you thought you'd end up taking? It, it was. Uh, he actually started out as a sports writer, believe it or not, at the, the old Woodbury Times in, uh, in, in Gloucester County, but uh, quickly moved over to news. 
Yeah, I mean, I always was a, you know, I loved sports growing up. I play, I wasn't a great player or anything, but I loved to play. And, um, yeah, and I was an English major in college. And so I did always kind of like reading and writing. Um, and, it, and sports journalism was kind of a way to kind of put the two things that, you know, I really enjoyed and was passionate about together. So I never really had much experience as a sort of regular news reporter. I've always been a sports journalist and uh, it's always been where I wanted to be. And you started at the Courier Post. I think uh, you were still in college when you got you got your foot in the door at the Courier Post. Correct. I mean, you know, newspapers were different then. They had a lot of room for a lot of people, and and I actually started part time at the Courier Post while I was still at um, Glassburg State. And uh, not soon, not long after I got um, I graduated from Glassburg State, I was able to get a full time job at the at the uh, Courier Post, which is um, I was very fortunate with and. Uh, it's a little tougher for kids nowadays. The field isn't quite the same, but back then newspapers had all the money. They, they had more money than they knew what to do with. So it was a little bit easier to get your foot in the door back then. So when you start at, and you mentioned like a lot of young reporters, you start covering the high school and college. At the beginning, did you think I could be content doing this or were you still kind of hungry and, and wanted the shot at, at covering pros and stuff like that? No, I, I sort of envision myself as a pro writer. You know, I think most kids that start out, in fact, I teach down at Rowan now, and I have a lot of, uh, you know, students who sort of aspire to be, I want to cover the Yankees. You know, we get a lot of kids from North Jersey, I want to cover the Yankees, or I want to cover the New York Giants. So I was one of those that I, you know, I enjoyed high school right away, but I did see it at that point in my career as kind of a stepping stone, um, you know, to cover a pro beat. And by 83, which was about two or three years into my career, um, I was able to, uh, I was hired or moved into the Eagles beat writer for the career post. So that was really an aspiration for me at that stage of my career. But you're pretty young, I guess, 83, you're like 26, 25, uh, 25, yeah. 25 when I, uh, when I became the Eagles beat writer. Yep. Overwhelming at first to cover an NFL team or where did you feel comfortable right away a little bit overwhelming uh but you know there was a lot of collegiality on the beat then you know the guys from the Inquirer, uh, uh jury longman who's still writing for uh new york times was on the was on the beat for the Inquirer back then rich hoffman for the daily news guys i quickly became friends with and uh, really kind of helped me kind of get my feet wet and sort of understand what it was like to cover an nfl beat um, things were different back then. I mean, obviously there was the, there was a, such a thing back then as a news cycle <laughs> and you actually were writing for kind of the next day's newspaper. It wasn't quite as, you know, fast paced as it is now. So, um, but yeah, it was overwhelming at first, but I just had great people around me that really kind of helped me find my way. And 83. So you're really coming on board to cover a team that is at the down cycle after the Vermeil years. I guess that's Marion Campbell. Marion right? Campbell's three years I covered, and then Buddy came in, and everything changed after that. Yeah. So what was it? Uh, what was it like covering those Marion Campbell teams because they weren't very good, and a lot of times they looked pretty bad doing it, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a whole lot of frame frame of reference of what it was like compared to an exciting time because it is all I knew at that point. But it was kind of. Uh, I don't think there was a tremendous amount of interest in the the way there is now or the way there was, you know, when Buddy came in and kind of rejuvenated everything and certainly through, you know, years since then. So I think the Eagles were, um, you know, not quite as high profile back then. It was a little quieter. They weren't a very good team. Uh, They weren't a very exciting team Um, in that era. Marion was not a real exciting guy that really didn't ignite the, you know, Capture the imagination. I don't think he was a real nice guy, but didn't really capture the imagination. I don't think of the uh, 
of the fans. So it was a kind of a quiet um, time, I think, in Eagles history. And maybe in retrospect, that, that worked out good for me because I was kind of able to feel my way a little bit on a, on a beat that wasn't quite as high profile as it, as, as it would be in the future. And in the future was really Buddy Ryan comes to town, and it's almost like that's almost a head whipping one eighty going from Marion Campbell to to Buddy Ryan. Do you remember those first when the Buddy Ryan introductory press conference that first training camp? What was that like? Yeah, it was crazy. Actually, I remember before the first uh, before the first training camp, they actually went down to Tampa with a, like a mini camp uh, sometime in the spring, right after Buddy got hired. And he just, you know, he made some comments about some players that just kind of, you know, just kind of blew everybody's head away that, you know, this coach would talk this way and, you know, I would trade him for a six pack and it wouldn't even have to be cold, that kind of stuff, you know. And uh, so it was a dramatic change, obviously, in in personality and, uh, you know, really from a journalistic standpoint, uh, you know, just a terrific guy to cover in terms of him being so outspoken, you know, so so um, kind of fun-loving and say anything that came in his mind. And also, I always said that the thing about Buddy that was great to cover was, you know, he immediately kind of had an, you know, an image, you know, that was sort of like indelibly stamped in everybody's mind. This is, this is Buddy and this, this is the, the Eagles under Buddy. And when you're covering a team that has an image, it's easy to write about them because you can either play towards that image or off that image, but your reader always has a frame of reference. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They really know what the Eagles are and what their image is, and that really helps you as a writer. So Buddy was great to cover, and he was great um, with the media, believe it or not. He actually was really good to the beat guys and uh, was friendly, would call you up at home. Um, so that was really kind of um, that, that was a great time uh, for me journalistically covering the, the Buddy era. Was Buddy, quote-unquote, off the record the same as Buddy on the record? Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, he really was. And like I said, he was a guy who, uh, you know, a lot of times you cover people and uh, they're one person with the guys that are there every day and then there's someone else when national guys come in or, you know, the network TV comes in and they kind of put a certain image up. Buddy was the exact opposite. He was better to the local guys than he was to the national guys that would kind of parachute in. And that was something that always, you know, the guys that covered him really kind of grew, grew to appreciate. Uh, really, really a good guy to cover. Um, and, you know, didn't quite get done what he always said he was going to get done. But from a journalistic standpoint, it was just a great experience those five years. Do you think, and I've always wondered this, if Buddy wasn't so brash and had the exact same timeline of success, three straight playoff losses, but if he was a more measured personality, do you think he would have – East- Think he still gets fired after they they lose that playoff? No, I think I think it was a big part was the clash with him with him and uh, Norman Brayman, the owner, and Harry Gamble, the general manager. I mean, Buddy kind of made enemies within the organization, and when you do that, you got to win, you know. And and uh, so he had no margin for error. I think if he was, you know, on better terms with the ownership uh, and with the you know the management of the team, it was almost like an upstairs downstairs split back then. I mean. When I think back of it, it's kind of hard to believe just how much the locker room and the coaches were separated from the front office. And uh, it was almost like an open sort of distrust of each other, which was really a strange dynamic. Looking back, it's even stranger now because I don't really remember any other team in this city that was quite, you know, that dramatically, that dramatically uh, sh- uh, you know, split 
Um, but I do think that if, if he had just kind of been a guy that got along with management and got along with the owner, I think he would have still been there because it wasn't quite as high pressure back then where you had to get it done in five years. Um, and they did make the playoffs three years in a row, and they were universally regarded as one of the best teams in the league. Although, you know, you can't discount the fact that they did fall short in the playoffs three years in a row. From your time doing the Eagles, and how long did you do the Eagles? Ten I years? did the Eagles for ten years. Ten years. Yep. What are, you know, if you think back, what are the the most important or the most memorable stories you think you covered during your time on the Eagles? Beat? Well, the thing I'll never forget is the Fog Bowl. I mean, that was just, you know, that was, I think, probably the second most famous weather game in NFL playoff history, probably behind the Ice Bowl. And, uh, you know, I'll never forget that. It was, 80, it was, Chris, it was New Year's Eve, uh, 1988. Eagles are in Chicago. That's their first playoff right. game under Buddy. Um, you know, Buddy was crazy. I mean, they went into... They went into Chicago, and he would he would pull stuff like this. Like he he made the team buses from the, from the airport on the way to the hotel circle Soldier Field and honk the horns because we're not sneaking into town. You know he would do that kind of stuff, and the players loved it. It was a it was almost like a Harry High School kind of aspect to it. But um, players the players responded to it. So they're in Chicago, and the game starts. It's a sunny day, and I'll never forget it. Was uh, we're in the press box and. Somebody from the Philadelphia media was looking down and said, hey, I think there's a fire there because uh, you could see kind of this smoke. And the guys from Chicago were like, no, that's not a fire. That's fog. Next thing you know, this fog bank rolls in. And I'm telling you, Matt, you could not see the field. You simply could not see the field. And uh, what I'll never forget is, and this would never happen nowadays, NFL officials came into the press box at halftime, grabbed the writers and said, you, we know you guys can't see, so you can cover the second half of the game from the sideline. It was like covering a high school game. You're on the sideline of an NFL playoff game. And it was surreal because the players, the fog was so patchy, like they would disappear and then they'd appear. If they come towards you, they'd come out of a fog bank. If they went the other side of the field, they'd disappear. You could hear the crowd, but you couldn't see the crowd. It was pretty surreal. And when it was over, I mean, the Eagles weren't even all that upset about losing. They were still a very young team. It was their first playoff loss. And every, all everybody wanted to talk about was the weather. So that's something that, uh, you know, when I look back on my career, I'll never forget covering the Fog Bowl. You know what always amazed me about that, especially with Buddy? I was stunned at some point he didn't try to play 14 guys on defense or something and just see if you could get away with it and, right. and go from there. Well, he actually did pull a stunt like that uh, a couple years later where, they, um, where they, they had to get a punt off in the last seconds of the game. And uh, he sent 15 guys out. Just to block, so they they would have be completely blocked, and uh, he you know he he uh, he would do stuff like that. They got a penalty, but the clock was able to run right. down, and that's all he really wanted to do. And I think it actually led to a rule change. But yeah, buddy was crazy stuff like that. They had the fake kneel down. I don't know if you remember oh, that, I in, remember the eight, that. Yeah. in the eighty seven uh, you know the scab game, and, and uh, so buddy would do crazy stuff like that. And you're right, I'm thinking. Thinking about the Fog Bowl, Buddy probably should have tried to sneak a guy on there since you really couldn't see who how many were in the huddle. Because I, I think you either get away with it and it changes the game or it exposes what a farce this is that you're playing. Yeah. I thought there were, I mean, who knows? It's not something you can plan on, but that right. was just always something I thought of. Time for a break on one-on-one. We will have more with the Philadelphia Inquirer's Phil Anastasia right after this.
It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. And we are back on one-on-one, our guest this week, Philadelphia Inquirer sports reporter, Phil Anastasia. So, 10 years on the Eagles, and then you start, did you become sports editor? We kind of start doing a column? No, I went, I went, I became a columnist after uh, 10 years on the Eagles beat. So, in, in, uh, in 92, I became a sort of general columnist at the Courier Post, and I did that for 10 years, covering, you know, Flyers, Sixers, Phillies, Eagles, a lot of college basketball, and then a little bit of high schools as well. Um, and I did that for 10 years, and then in 02, I became a sports editor. Did you enjoy the columnist having to kind of have that, that wide reach, or did you prefer if you had your druthers focusing on one or two things? No, that probably was the, the favorite, uh, my favorite part of that stage of my career, uh, being a columnist, being able to write about you know, a lot of different things. There's so many you know, good teams in town and so many exciting things happening in town. Um, you know, to be able to do that kind of all through the— through the '90s, there and cover some really exciting stuff was uh, was a great experience. And again, it wasn't like pigeon-toed into one team. Although I did that for ten years with the Eagles, to be able to cover everybody, you know, for those ten years was really exciting. Um, oh, I kind of skipped, but you, when you were doing the Eagles, you also obviously in the off season, and also I would guess the NFL wasn't quite the twelve month a year grind that 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 beat is now. You covered the Villanova Georgetown national title game, didn't you? Right. Yeah. Back then, actually, my, my job back then was Eagles slash college basketball writer because Eagles season usually would end in December. And college basketball back then really wouldn't get going that much until like after the new year. So I did a lot of Big Five basketball all the way through the 80s. I always tell my kids in, in class that I learned how to write on deadline covering uh, double headers at the Palestra. actually started out writing on a typewriter, believe it or not. It was like a year or two later when Radio Shack came out with the little computers and, you know, we thought we were space age. But <laughs> when I first started, I actually was writing on a typewriter covering 7 o'clock and 9 o'clock doubleheaders at the Palestra. So, yeah, one of the most memorable things I ever covered was that Villanova team in 86. Um, you know, everybody remembers Villanova recently winning the two national titles, but that 86 team was was pretty remarkable, and that game obviously was, I think, one of the most remarkable games in college basketball history. What was the buzz leading into that? Was it, oh, Villanova's a nice story, but they're about to get crushed by Patrick Ewing, right? Was there any any uh, avenue that thought, hey, you know what, Villanova could win this? Well, I mean, they were, they were you know, Big East rivals, so it wasn't like uh, Georgetown had a mystique to Villanova that they would have against a team that, that didn't play them twice a year. Georgetown was better than them, had beaten them twice during the regular season. St. John's actually beat them three times that year, twice in the regular season and once in the Big East tournament. That was a great St. John's team with Chris, Chris Mullen. Mullen. Right. Yeah, they just did, the bracket broke that St. John's played Georgetown in the semifinals, and Villanova got Memphis with a kid named Keith Lee, which was a real good matchup for Villanova. But yeah, I mean, I don't know that anybody thought Villanova was going to win, but there wasn't like this sense that... Um, you know, they have no chance because, again, this was a division, this was a league rival that they saw twice a year. So there wasn't that sort of, like I said, there wasn't that sense that they weren't familiar with them. But certainly everybody thought uh, Georgetown was going to win Ewing senior year. They were defending champions. They had won it in 84. 
So they were heavy underdogs going in, but I don't think they were quite, um, you know, no chance kind of underdogs. Do you, because I know a lot of times when I'm covering stuff, you're so in the moment of taking notes, keeping track. Of, you, you're not quite processing what you're saying. At, as you're watching this, you know, are you realizing, like, they haven't missed a shot in like a half an hour. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because back then you weren't, you know, you weren't like uh, tweeting every right. minute <laughs> kind of thing. So I was actually able to kind of pay attention. I wasn't on deadline until like six o'clock the next morning because the Courier Post was still an afternoon newspaper. So, yeah, I do remember it being, um, you know, a remarkable performance that we were all were watching. I do know, uh, I think it was the last game played before a shot clock. And I think they took ten shots in the second half and made nine. So it was it was a pretty remarkable performance and uh you know, something I'll never forget. And the interesting thing was I had covered that team all year long as a college basketball writer. And anybody that was around Villanova all year long never would have imagined that this team was gonna win a national title. I think they were like a seven seed. Uh, Raleigh ended up benching every year. I got blown out by Pitt, I think, the last game in the regular season. Raleigh ended up benching like all the starters. There was no sense around this team that they were going to do anything special. Got knocked out of the Big East tournament, you know, by St. John's, I think, fairly earlier in the semifinals. There was no sense that this team was going to do anything special. And they just kind of caught magic in a bottle. And, you know, six games were just, they were, they just got better and better and more confident and then capped it off with. Really, like I said, one of the most remarkable performances, I think, in NCAA tournament history. So you go from the columnist to editor. Did you enjoy the position of being a sports editor? Uh, I enjoyed post? some aspects of it. You know, it was kind of, you know, I'm a South Jersey guy, so it was kind of fun to sort of direct coverage and kind of, you know, define what the Courier Post would be in terms of our sports coverage. I found that fun and challenging, but in some ways I was a little bit of a fish out of water. You know, I'm really kind of a writer more than a than an administrator or a manager. So it was six years, and there was, you know, like I said, it was some challenges and some rewarding aspects to it. But uh, in some ways, again, I felt a little bit like this is not really who I am. Although I was able to keep writing a little bit, I still was able to do a column or two a week um, while I was the sports editor. But uh, it was a good, you know, it was a good experience in terms of dealing with people back then boy we had a staff maybe like 30 people um so it was good kind of you know getting getting to sort of be a leader of a of a, of a group of people who all were kind of pulling in the same direction and and i really was proud as as all of our think of uh, uh, people there were of what the courier post um sports section was like during that period so from there you joined the Inquirer in 2008 am i correct correct yep was the Inquirer as a south jersey kid was the Inquirer always kind of, I would love to, to get the chance to climb that mountain? Without a doubt. In fact, you know, for the longest time, I couldn't get hired by the Inquirer because my brother worked there and they had an anti-nepotism rule for the longest period of time. So I didn't think I was ever going to get there. When they were owned by Knight Ritter, uh, I just, I was not eligible to get hired. Then they went through a couple of, uh, you know, ownership changes. Uh, but the opportunity to get there, I mean, obviously the Inquirer, if you're a newspaper guy in this area, the Inquirer is, is the you know, is the, is the number one paper. And at that time it was, uh, you know, it was a real thrill for me. They, 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 they have a South Jersey section. They had an, uh, an even more robust, robust South Jersey section at the time. Um, and the, their pitch to me was, you know, we really want to kind of Im- increase, improve our South Jersey high school sports coverage. We'd love for you to be our high school, South Jersey high school writer. Um, and so it was, to me, it was like a perfect job, you know, it was, 
high school sports in South Jersey, which is really kind of, you know, my neck of the woods and something that I love, but also working for the best newspaper in the area. So really kind of fortunate that, that that opportunity presented itself. So you come to the Inquirer covering high school sports. Do you feel comfortable right away? Like this is, it's like a warm blanket. I'm, I'm right back. What I, what I love to do, or was there a little bit of transition after being an administrator for you know, an administrator for some time? Uh, no, it was pretty, pretty easy and smooth transition for me. Again, working with great people for great people uh, made it easy. And just, you know, covering South Jersey high schools is just, uh, it's very, you know, it's very natural for me. Just very familiar with all the coaches and players, teams, the traditions, you know, the context for everything that's happening. So made for a very smooth transition. What is your favorite of the high school sports? Do you have one that is your your most exciting, you think, to cover? One sport, you one mean? One sport, yeah. No, I really don't. Although, you know, it's funny because I tell, I tell my kids in class um, that the sport doesn't matter. You're always writing about people. Um, so wherever there's an exciting sort of story, no matter what the background uh, sport may be, you know, I'll try to find and tell that story. I, I joke with my kids at the 96 Olympics, I actually ended up covering women's equestrian because uh, there was a, a local girl from, from Voorhees that was actually a uh, U.S. Olympian in the equestrian team. Turned out to be the, one of the best stories, maybe the best story I wrote in, you know, three weeks down at the Atlanta Olympics. So I tell them, you know, the sport really doesn't matter. Um, you know, you're, you're writing about people and you can find a good story anywhere. So... I don't really have a favorite. I, I have things that I don't really enjoy too much, and one of those would be like an early April baseball game where neither pitcher can find the strike zone because <laughs> uh, it gets really cold. But for the most part, you know, I, I enjoy covering everything. When you think to your time covering high school sports, who are some of the, the best athletes that you've covered regardless of the sport? Well, I mean, I think the best athlete I ever covered was Dewan Wagner at Camden High. Um, you know, this was this goes back, uh, you know, probably to I guess Dewan graduated high school in '01. So this is right before um, I actually became a, a sports editor, I was still at the Courier Post. But he was like no athlete I ever saw before, and just a dominant. Scored like 3,500 points in in high school, and uh, he was like a rock star in high school. Every game he ever played, it was a packed gym; you couldn't get in, and um, he embraced that and loved it. And, uh, you know, he was really a remarkable athlete. Mike Trout was the best, um, probably at his particular sport that I ever saw. But the difference between like Dewan and Mike Trout was Mike Trout would only get four at bats a game and they would walk him in three of them, you know? So he really couldn't, he wasn't like Dewan had the ball the whole game, you know, Mike Trout could only do what he could do. And that was, you know, half the time they were just walking him. So he wasn't able to impact the game quite as much as, say, a Dewan was or a basketball player could or even a, a running back in football could. Baseball's a different kind of sport, but certainly when you watched Mike Trout, you knew you were watching, um, you know, just a rare talent. Not that anybody, I think, thought watching that 17-year-old kid that he was going to become the best player in the world, but he was a remarkable high school athlete. And you mentioned Dewan Wagner playing in front of packed crowds and all. I mean, high school baseball as a rule around here, isn't the draw that high right. school basketball is. But can you remember when the buzz started about a, a Mike Trout? And did you, could you, was there a palpable difference at a certain point where you noticed that people were going out of their way to come watch these games? Yeah, I mean, without a doubt. And again, it's basically, like you said, baseball, the atmosphere is a little bit different. But people knew, I think, from his sophomore year on that this kid was really special. Uh, again, but the sort of the nature of the sport is such that he, you know, a lot of times you would go watch him and all he would do is walk, mm -hmm. you know, because they were pitching around him. 
Um, you know, but certainly there was a sense of how good this kid was. And uh, it was kind of really remarkable when you think about it that he lasted as long as he did and as many teams passed on him as did. You know, I think some of it was just he was a Northeast high school hitter, you know, and people weren't sure, um, you know, that a hitter from the Northeast who was seeing a lot of, you know, 75, 80 mile an hour fastballs would really convert to a great player, but, um, you know, uh, they were wrong. (laughs) (laughs) About games. I mean, what are, if I asked you, what are some of the best high school games you've ever been a part of? Yeah, I mean, just so, you know, so many kind of uh, championship games, you know, and again, I go back to basketball just because of the sort of the excitement in the gym, you Mm -hmm. know, and that, that kind of atmosphere, um, that you just that just doesn't exist. Even though I love covering high school football and I love football championship games, because of it being outdoors, there isn't sort of that kind of atmosphere that you get in a gym. So um, you know, just so many high school games, buzzer beaters, you know, walk off home runs, and you know, game winning golden goals in soccer. I mean, it's hard for me to sort of single out one, but I just I've seen a, a lot of them and. Uh, Kind of had a front row seat to a lot of great, great uh, games, and really feel very fortunate about that. How many do you? How many games do you cover a year? If you've had the ballpark, it. Uh, well, I mean, I'm ten months, and I'm at a game. You know, not every day, but on a regular basis. So I, I don't know what those numbers would be, but it, w- it would be a lot. Um, you know, it's funny because a lot of people in my in my business now, and I understand. You know, say that you know covering the games isn't really. Uh, you know, it doesn't really kind of move the dial on the website. People don't really want to read about a game. They'd rather read about maybe a feature story or a column or some sort of broader interest kind of story. But, you know, when you're, da- when you're, when you're, when you're covering something at the grassroots, the only way to cover it really is to get out and see games and see teams and see players and talk to coaches and talk to parents who complain to you about why didn't you write about my kid. But anyway, you got to get out there and do it, you know, so – even though sometimes sometimes I'll go to a lot of games that I don't even cover, you know, just to kind of be out, be seen, see people. Um, there's really no other way to cover high school sports than to get out. It's not like you can watch it on TV or even kind of follow it online. You really kind of have to get out and do it. So um, whatever the number of, of game stories I've written, I've actually been at more games than that. How much has, and you talked about earlier, what you love about high school sports. How has the dynamic of high school athletics changed from, you know, when you're getting your first taste, 79, 80, 81 to now? Well, I mean, I think social media has changed everything, you know, good or bad, uh, both, you know, both. I mean, but certainly in terms of covering high schools, it's been a dramatic change. Um, you know, just in terms of, uh, Twitter. I mean, everybody's on Twitter. Now these kids are on Twitter. Everything's kind of sped up. Um, you know, the games themselves are the same. I think the kids, I think for, a, for, to a large extent are the same. Uh, but the social media presence, I think is kind of heightened everything, raised the kind of raised the stakes, raised the pressure a little bit. There's certainly more kind of hype around recruiting than there used to be. Everybody's, you know, everybody's uh, tweeting out. I just got an offer from this one. I got an offer from that one. Um, kids will do like videos to kind of announce where they're going to school. That kind of stuff never existed before, but there's positives to it too. I mean, anything that can, can kind of spread the, spread the word a little bit, the ability for somebody like me or anybody in my, in my, my shoes to kind of spread their content in a, in, wider than we've ever been able to before 
you know, is a good thing. I hear from a lot of people. I have friends, you know, kids, guys I went to school with that live overseas that are still able to sort of follow my work, you know, uh, through social media or, or through the, you know, through the internet. They were never able to do that when I first started. We talked about DeJuan Watt, you know, some of the great athletes. Are there any people, any other kids that you covered that maybe emerged and maybe weren't a star, but maybe became a name, if not in athletics, in, in something else? Because there's something about that high school, you know, so many paths can go yeah. from there. You know, was there ever, has anybody ever won a Senate race? And you're like, well, I'll be darned. I covered him when he was in. Anybody, anybody like that? Well, I mean, the the, the kid, I, the guy I always think back to, and maybe I'm thinking about it, and maybe it's ringing a bell now because I, I just recently saw him, is, is Adam Talaferro, who was a tremendous, tremendous high school football player um, at Eastern High School in Voorhees. Um, you know, went to Penn State as a true freshman, was a starter, you know, as, and as a defensive back, and then, you know, obviously had that devastating injury and has actually turned what was a terrible thing that happened to him into a real positive for, you know, so many different people through his foundation and, and, and to this day remains dedicated to sort of helping people uh, who suffer serious uh, injuries and their families kind of get through it. So he's a guy that I could point to as, you know, here's a guy who when he was in high school and he, you know, he's telling me this recently, you know, all he ever dreamed about was being an NFL player. But he's a guy I could point to that said, you know what, his, his dream was kind of derailed by this traumatic, horrible you know, incident, and yet he was able, through a lot of help, the people at McGee and the people involved in his foundation, to turn it into a positive for a, a lot of people and actually have more of an impact than he probably ever would as an NFL player. And now he's a politician who's dedicated to kind of helping people in South Jersey. So if there's one guy, I mean, one person that I covered that I have just the utmost respect and admiration for of what he's been able to do. It would be Adam. And, and I say that having known as watching him as an athlete, he was capable of being in the NFL. He was one of the best high school football players I ever saw. And yet, you know, he actually turned out to have more of an impact on people and on society as, uh, you know, in the wake of what happened to him than he probably ever would as a, as a professional athlete. We touched earlier on on your brother's work covering organized crime. What is that, both being journalists but having widely different beats? I don't know that you could have more <laughs> widely. Uh, you know, do you guys discuss journalism, stuff like that? Do you get a, you know, you talk to him and he tells you about some of the things over the years that he was tracking down and you're like, wow. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you're right. And, and uh, you know, certainly we never kind of cover the, the same thing. But, I mean, there's certain aspects to journalism, no matter what you're covering that, you know, would apply. Um, you know, my brother is just, you know, he's, uh, he's been my role model for years. He's a guy I've always looked up to. Um, you know, I always joke he's my famous older brother and, uh, you know, just being able to follow in the same field as him, although not covering the same thing has been sort of an honor for me. But yeah, I mean, he's just, uh, there's been a million things in the course of my career that I've had to I bounced off him just to kind of get his advice. And, uh, you know, in our conversations, I'm sure he was doing the same with me. Because when you're, when you're in this field, and I'm sure it's true with you, Matt, I mean, just talking to people kind of helps you kind of think about how you want to kind of present different stories that you want to present and maybe different ideas that you have. So certainly I, I've done that with him, and I suspect he's probably done that a little bit, a little bit with me as well. 
mentioned you teach at Rowan. I guess you've done that close to 15, 16 years 16, now, right? My 16th year at Rowan, yeah. It's wonderful. They're great down there. I mean, this college has changed so dramatically. I mean, people that went it's to— It's swallowing up Glassboro. Yes, Rowan. it is. People that went to Glassboro State uh, and haven't been down there would not recognize. It's not Glassboro State. It's Rowan University, and it's, uh, it's one of the more remarkable uh, stories, I guess, in higher education, uh, certainly on the East Coast. Um, in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years. But people are great down there, and the kids are great. I mean, they, you know, I get, I get, my classes fill up not because of me, but because of the subject matter. I mean, kids here, you know, sports journalism, this sounds like fun, and uh, it, it's a lot of fun for me, and hopefully it's a lot of fun for them as well. And we kind of touched on this, you touched on this uh, early on. What is the, what do you tell the kids these days? Because these are difficult days for media, specifically newspaper. Yeah. What do you tell kids that want to get into this? Well, I mean, I don't step on anybody's dream, you know, and certainly there are kids who really kind of aspire. I want to cover the Yankees or, you know, I want to cover the New York Giants or I want to cover the Phillies. And certainly I would never tell anybody, no, you can't do that. If that's your dream, you can chase it. But I try to encourage people to be realistic. I mean, there are still opportunities in this field. I have, you know, several formal students that are working full time in journalism, but maybe not nearly as many as there might have been if I was doing this you know, 20, 30 years ago. So I tell them to try to be realistic. The one thing about journalism now is there are so many different levels. You could do it full time if you get, if you're good enough. And if you find, you know, you're fortunate enough to get hired somewhere. You also have tremendous amount of opportunities to do it part time or do it on the side or work for a website or freelance for somebody. So I always tell them if you really love it, you can do it. But, you know, maybe you can kind of get a real job, you know, nine to five and get benefits and all that and kind of do it on the side. So I try to find a, a balancing act between, again, not stepping on anybody's dream, but trying to get them to think realistically about, you know, how many full-time opportunities are there really in this job, especially in the newspaper business, which is obviously uh, going through some hard times in the last 10, 15 years. And we talked about how many games you cover. How many phone numbers do you think you've collected of high school coaches, parents, athletes in the? Time I, I don't know, but I, I know I was I was uh, I just leased a car recently, and, and the salesman was actually going through my phone because he wanted to kind of hook it up with the computer on the phone and on the in the car. And I don't know what the number was, but he was like astounded with how many contacts I had, and I'm, he's like, "Why do you have all these contacts?" And well, you know, part of my job is I got to deal with all these different people, so I, I don't know what the number is. I think it's an awful lot, though. Anastasia, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, my pleasure, Matt. And that will do it for this week's show. One on One is a sports podcast from KYW News Radio. If you like the show, want to help us out, make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss an episode. And you can help more people find out about the podcast by finding the show on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at One on One Pod, and you can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon1060. Want to thank Phil Anastasia of the Philadelphia Inquirer for joining us this week. You can follow Phil on Twitter at Phil Anastasia. My name is Matt Leon. Come back next week for another good conversation with someone you should know more about.